Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, we're speaking with John Alterman, the beginning of Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy and the Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to joining CSIS in 2002, he served as a member of the Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State and as a special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. As you've probably heard, we speak about the Middle East on this program. We speak about China. And today we're going to speak about them together as John Alterman guides us through the changing and sometimes unexpected relationship between China and the Middle East. I'm pleased he's here, John Alterman. Let me first start off by saying the way I got into this wasn't something obvious. I came to CSS in 2002 and I came up with a list of maybe eight or 10 projects that I might want to pursue. And one of them was China in the Middle East. It, it wasn't any deep insight. It just seemed to me inevitable that China would have a larger role in the region. Nobody had done any work at all at that point on China in the Middle East. I managed to get a little bit of money. I did a project. Uh, I wrote a book in 2007 or 2008, and it's just sort of taken off since then. Um, About four or five years ago, maybe six now, uh, I was doing some research in Dubai, and across the street from my hotel was a Chinese restaurant. So the person I was traveling with said, let's get some dinner. So we walked across the street and walked into this restaurant and the wait staff was, was lovely and, and was all dressed in, in tuxedo shirts and yellow bow ties and cummerbunds. And we looked around and there were a lot of lazy Susans and, and, and at the tables. And we said, can we see a menu? And she sort of looked at me blankly. And so I tried in Arabic and I said, do you have a menu? And she looked at me blankly. I I sort of looked at her quizzically, and and she said, no English. And it turned out that this was a Chinese restaurant for Chinese people in Dubai, which had no interest in catering to Arabs. It had no interest in catering to Western tourists. This was There were enough Chinese in Dubai to support a Chinese restaurant intended for Chinese people. It turns out there are a quarter million Chinese who live in the UAE. They're involved in tourism, they're involved in trade, they're involved in construction, they, they do all kinds of things. But, but Dubai has become a hub for a larger set of Chinese activities in the Middle East, and that, that set of activities is increasing all the time. Go back to your initial feelings about China in the Middle East. You said you felt it was inevitable. Had there been an event or something you read about or, or some friend of yours on the ground that made you think, I need to put my focus here? Or was it really just a feeling? Did you feel China's everywhere? Why not the Middle East? It was, it was kind of a feeling. You know, it started my, my introduction to China in the Middle East is when I was studying Arabic in Cairo in the early 90s. There's a restaurant in downtown Cairo called Fuxing on the second floor of a building. And you walked in and there was a Chinese owner 
who spoke unaccented Egyptian colloquial Arabic. And it turned out that his family had fled China in the early 1950s. And he'd lived in, in Egypt and he set up this restaurant. And, and when they gave you your bill, you would get a bill written with Chinese words in Arabic characters. So I have a big enough problem understanding Chinese words written in characters that I can read. But when you start putting into Arabic, I had no idea what the bill was for, but Egypt at that time was cheap enough. It didn't really matter. I had known that there was something, there's some connection to China. And of course, in those days, it was very small. But I just had this sense that people were talking about the growing Chinese economy. China had become a net oil importer in 1993. And with the growing economy, it seemed to me that there was likely to be some growing Chinese connection to the Middle East. But there was, I said, there was no work in the field. There were no people in the field. It just felt to me, as I thought about the Middle East, that why is everybody talking about China everywhere, not the Middle East? Surely there will be, from this very low base, a growth of China in the Middle East. Maybe that's worth paying attention to. 250,000 people, quarter million Chinese, yet you in, in the UAE, in the UAE alone, and, and you have talked about how the, the role of China in the Middle East is, is highly different than the United States' role, and obviously we'll go into that in some detail, but, but why all the people? I mean, it, it, it sounds like a silly question, but if the role is, is a, a, a rather small in terms of footprint that you've talked about, cultural and military footprint, what are these 250,000 people doing in the UAE? Well, there's a lot of business. Um, one thing is the UAE has become a hub trading with Europe and the Middle East and Africa. Um, Emirates Airlines, in many ways, is the national airline of Africa. It's very easy to get to Dubai from lots and lots of places. And there are a large number of Chinese businesses that have set up offices in Dubai. And that provides an opportunity for people who want to trade with China to not have to travel all the way to China, to not have to deal with a Chinese-speaking environment. They can be in an English-speaking environment, in a place that's easy to get to with good hotels and good restaurants and all that sort of thing, and do business with China. So probably about 12 years ago, maybe a little more, uh, they built a, a development called Dragon Mart, which has been described as a mall. It's partly a mall. It's partly a set of of showrooms for salesmen, but it is a mile long and it's full of Chinese businesses linked back to China. Now, when I first went to Dragon Mart, probably in 2007 or 2008, it was mostly Chinese business people. Now Dragon Mart is mostly staffed by South Asians and the Chinese business people are a little bit removed, but they're representing Chinese businesses that are doing business. And if you want to buy a container and have it sent to Africa, they can send a container to Africa. If you want, you can buy from a number of different merchants and you can basically assemble a container worth of Chinese produced goods in Dubai and then have it shipped anywhere in the world. So for a lot of the trade in Dubai, a lot of that is about people transshipping from the UAE to somewhere else in the world, and Dubai is a platform for that. But you also have lots of Chinese workers working on construction projects throughout the Middle East, uh, tens of thousands in many countries, and they're involved in Algeria, they're involved in Libya, uh, there are a lot of Chinese in, in Iraq, uh, there are Chinese in the oil business, there are Chinese in the chemicals business, there are Chinese involved in constructing 
cement plants and chemical plants and steel plants and all kinds of things like that. There are small traders. Peter Hessler had an article in the New York in the New Yorker about five years ago about some Chinese traders in Upper Egypt who own a lingerie shop and they sell Chinese produced lingerie to Egyptians. Uh, I met Chinese traders in Algeria who had a clothing store and they have Chinese produced clothing and they they sell it to Algerians. So um, there are lots and lots of different reasons, all tied to money uh, and all tied to, to Chinese feeling that they're going out to the world to, to make a living as Chinese, my understanding, Chinese have been doing for centuries. Okay, John Alterman, the central sort of question that I think a lot of people are wondering right now at this point in the conversation is what is China doing in the Middle East to begin with? You, you've talked about with respect to the United States China playing a supplementing rather than a supplanting role. What do you mean by that? There are some people who think that there's a zero-sum game between the United States and China, and the United States, to keep, United States has to keep China out of the Middle East because they will push the United States out of the Middle East. I think the Chinese have a much more sophisticated plan than that. I think that the Chinese are happy to have the United States do the heavy lifting, and they're happy to benefit from it. They're happy to have the United States provide some of this or a lot of the security, if not all of the security, as long as it doesn't prevent China from having access to resources that it wants. I still remember a conversation I had with a Chinese diplomat in Algiers uh, who looked at me and, and said, quite seriously, how about you do security, we do business? And I think the Chinese sense is that there's no reason to replicate the U.S. security footprint. There's no reason to antagonize countries by, by throwing around your weight in the Middle East. Let the United States pick up all of the opposition. China will come in saying we're here to trade, win-win. They go to governments and say, look, we can help you change economically without changing socially and politically, because social and political change is extraordinarily hard for people in government to manage. So the Chinese model is we will advance your economy, we will make you rich, and we're not going to talk about human rights, we're not going to talk about democratization, we're not going to talk about changing the role of women and all these different things. We will just do business with you. It will be win-win. And let the Americans do whatever they want and let the Americans annoy people. We will be your partners. And in places from the UAE to Saudi Arabia to Egypt, it's a very, very attractive model. So you've sort of brought me to what I wanted to touch on, which is sort of the moralistic underpinning of this whole thing. And that is that, to put it simply, China doesn't care about human rights, the role of women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the U.S., for the most part, historically, has cared about that. That allows China, as you're articulating, to go about sort of with quite a blind eye, uh, or not even a blind eye, just a sort of lack of regard to all of those, as I said, moralistic underpinnings. It seems like an amazing advantage to be able to say, your society's wonderful, do whatever you want, we're only in it for the cash. Yeah, and you know, I guess you know one of the questions is how well that works in the long term. Uh, whether mercantilism is an effective strategy for the 21st century, whether China can protect its economic interests without having any kind of military footprint, whether it has to have a different 
strategy toward diplomacy when it's a major player and not just a bit player. The, the other thing that, that's, to me, a little bit puzzling, and, and I'm not sure if it's surprising or not, is Middle Eastern governments, governments in Muslim-majority states, have been very quiet about the Chinese treatment of the Uyghur population, a Turkic Muslim population in Western China, uh, which has essentially been put in concentration camps. Upwards, perhaps more than a million people. Uh, actually, there have been some studies using satellite uh, imagery to, to judge just how expansive these camps are. These are Muslim populations that are being suppressed by a government with virtually virtually no comment at all from Muslim-majority governments after hearing so much about solidarity in the Balkans with the Albanians and, and of course, with Palestinians and others, there seems to be a, a complete blind eye. Is that merely because governments want Chinese money? Is it because the Chinese have said, we won't tolerate it and there will be consequences? Is it because all of the Muslim solidarity has always been performance art anyway, and nobody was serious. I'm not exactly sure, but I note it with some surprise that this is an area where Muslim solidarity seems to completely break down, and it has been breaking down. And it's not just because it's not on broadcast television networks. There's a very robust social media scene in the Arab world, and that hasn't picked up hostility to the way China treats the, the weaker population either. Okay, you're, you're coming to such an interesting point, because here in the United States, we hear about the Uyghurs sort of on and off in mainstream media, in, in sort of more intellectual or, or smaller circulation publications, but it, it's around. It's a story that I think most people know about. It's not talked about with the outrage that other issues in other countries are talked about. What you're bringing up, which is the lack of comment from Muslim countries is all the more striking. Uh, what countries would you expect or would you have expected to speak out that aren't? Well, I mean, Turkey has occasionally spoken out and, and because it's a Turkic population, um, I think that's understandable. Turkey has its own commercial interests which regulate how much they raise it with the Chinese. Saudi Arabia, as the founder of the Organization of the Islamic Conference, the custodian of the two holy mosques uh, is another title for the king of Saudi Arabia. It is surprising that it seems to have been silenced as an issue in Saudi Arabia. If one of these countries, say Saudi Arabia, were to put out a statement, a weak, bland statement, but just something, how much harm do you think it could really do to the relationship with China? Well, I don't know. I, I assume that, that this is partly based on what they think China will do, and it's partly based on things the Chinese have told them privately. I have no idea either what their assessment is or what the Chinese have told them privately, but it certainly seems that there is more space to express concern than they've used. And as I say, whether, whether this represents a sign of their seeking money from the Chinese and being afraid of that, or whether it's a sign that they're not really serious about their statements of solidarity anyway, uh, ever, and it was always just a way to, to lash out at the United States or Israel or somebody else. I'm not really sure, but it does strike me as a, a rather dramatic absence, which bears some explanation. 
What's happening with these people right now, with these Uyghur Muslims in effectively concentration camps in China? Is this just going to keep going on? Is there any end in sight? Or are there more that are going to be rounded up? Uh, where did this all come from? I, I think it's a story that's not reported on enough for a lot of Americans to understand the why. Yeah, I'm not an expert on it. The, the, the Chinese claim that there's a terrorist separatist movement based in the Uyghur community. Uh, I know people who've paid more attention to it than me that say it's not a, a terrorist movement, but if the Chinese keep repressing them, that's what it'll turn into. Um, the Chinese tried very hard to sort of create astroturf Islam. And I, when I was in China the first or second time, this is probably almost 15 years ago, I met some people at the mosque and, and there was a, there had been a real effort to create state dominated religion. Islam was not excused from that. There were some Muslim restaurants around the mosque, and there's still a lot of Muslim restaurants in various parts of China. But the number of young people who know how to pray, who know any Arabic, uh, has been diminishing. Now, in recent years, I'm told that there has been a bit of a resurgence uh, in popular religion in China, particularly among Buddhists, I think, but I don't know that there's more... Uh, in the Christian community, how the Muslim community fits into that, I'm not exactly sure. But there is a, a clearly an effort from the Chinese Communist Party not to have movements that they consider threatening, and they certainly consider Islam from non-Han Chinese something that they consider a, a real challenge to them. The phrase you used before, performance art, is particularly striking, and it's damning, and I guess only time will tell whether or not you're correct regarding the condemnation or lack of condemnation by Muslim countries regarding Muslims in concentration camps in China. And the other piece of this, of course, is that you just recently had the UAE decide that it would have direct relations with Israel, irrespective of creating a Palestinian track, uh, as the Camp David Accords did with Egypt uh, and Israel. There, it may be that, that this whole idea of solidarity has never been serious, or it may be that it's serious in some cases, not others. I think it, it's it's of a similar thing that, that you'd think that this would be a big deal and it's not. And that should get you to ask questions about what's going on here. Because the treaty between UAE and Israel paid very little attention to the Palestinians. In there's essence. no treaty. I mean, there's no treaty. There's, there's an effort to pursue a set of agreements, but the framework does not have what was very heavily negotiated at Camp David uh, in 1978 and 79, which was there needs to be these benchmarks met on Palestinian self-determination. Which they weren't, and which, which again, UAE seems to, to care very little about when it comes to the actual Palestinian Currently, cause. I mean, they, they, had, they had cared for a long time. In fact, I remember when Harvard gave back money from the UAE not that long ago, less than 10 years ago, because they perceived the UAE to be a hotbed of, of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Uh, there have been a lot of quiet conversations between a whole range of Gulf Arabs and the Israelis for some time. But when, when the agreement was struck, the agreement was struck based on Israel not annexing territory in the West Bank and not about Israel beginning a process of, of, of greater self-determination for the Palestinians, which is the, the deal the Egyptians insisted on in the 70s. It seems like China has accomplished sort of the impossible in that they have very good relations with Iran and with Saudi Arabia. How have they done this? Is it is it the blind and, eye you talk Israel, about? To, 
And Israel, by the way. And Israel, okay. <laughs> the extra impossible. How has this been accomplished? Is it just a blind eye to anything cultural? So it's funny. First, the, the Chinese have money to spend, and that always helps. Uh, the Chinese are new kids on the block. They haven't picked up um, a lot of baggage. Uh, people tend to project hopes on China. People tend to, to be very optimistic about the future of China. They feel China is a rising power. China is going to have a, a larger footprint in the Middle East. And therefore, you'd be crazy not to have a good relationship with China, especially if you think the United States is on its way out the door. And it's partly that the Chinese have said, look, this is our lane. We're not trying to do everything. We have no intention. Um, and our lane is just business. And people have been willing to say, okay, let's do business because China is too big an economy and it's too big an energy consumer in particular for energy producers to ignore. You know, North America is importing, North America is, is, has been a, a net uh, energy exporter. Europe's demand has been going down. Asia's demand has been growing, going up. And the principal generator of demand in Asia is China. So if you feel that your country's future is based on producing oil as long as you can, and the principal driver of oil market growth is China, then how can you not have a good relationship with China? John Alterman, I'm going to take you in another direction briefly because, you know, I always talk to people about music on this show because it's the great unifier everywhere in the world. Beethoven Ninth Symphony unifies people and brings people together. What music do you love? So the funny thing, I am surrounded by people who are passionate about music and I am more passive about music than every member <laughs> of my family. Okay. okay. My, old, my oldest child started a, uh, a Disney acapella group in college, my middle uh, daughter uh, sings in gospel choir, though she's neither African-American nor Christian. Um, my wife is, is into alternative music and, and uh, 90s music and, and modern things. And I sort of like American roots. I listen to all kinds of things that everybody else in the family listens to. But I think, you know, Going overseas in the 90s, I spent a lot of the 90s overseas, before streaming, before music was really totally portable, uh, I had a decade of not having a lot of music in my life, and it, it kind of got me a little bit out of the habit. Did you go to concerts when you were, oh, where were you overseas? You were in the Middle East and China? I was and... in the Middle East. Well, I, I didn't live in China. I visited China. I've been to concerts in China. I've been to, to a number of different kinds of concerts uh, in Cairo, from classical music to Arab music to... Uh, jazz. Um, Cairo has a long uh, uh, tradition of opera, symphony, of Western classical music, a long distinguished tradition and a, a fine opera house. It does. The, the Japanese built the opera house. They still talk about it as this is what this is what a good relationship looks like, not like the Americans. Uh, they, they always sort of hold up the, the, the Cairo opera house as, as an example. Uh, although China, I'm sorry, although Cairo had an opera house um, is very prominent for the 19th and 20th centuries. When it had its revolution in the 1950s, it was very anti-bourgeois. There was a sense that culture was very connected to the old aristocracy. And there was an effort to create state-led culture in Egypt. That hasn't improved Egypt, uh, Egypt's music scene. It hasn't improved Egyptian culture. I went to, Egypt used to have a very impressive uh, puppet community. I went to a 
puppet show in Cairo. And it was exactly what you think a socialist puppet show would look like. It was loud and not very interesting and ultimately very depressing. I think Egypt, in many ways, the large public uh, music when I was there was still state-sponsored and still, in some ways, Soviet-inspired with a state cultural ministry and everything else. In the last 15 years, there has been a greater growth, um, partly with, with satellite television and music channels, Rotana, partly with music streaming. There is a pop music scene in the Middle East, uh, and I kind of miss that. So I was still in the day, I was living there in the days of cassettes. Um, the quality wasn't very good. And people often played them very, very loud and very distorted, and it wasn't that much fun to listen to. Let's go back to the area of expertise uh, of yours, which which isn't music, which is the Middle East. Uh, and d disregarding everything we said about China before, let's let's just look at Lebanon briefly. It, do you see Lebanon careening toward failed state status? How concerned are you about Lebanon? So I, I, go, I go back and forth on Lebanon. There are a lot of interests who don't want Lebanon to fall apart. And President Macron was just there for the second time since the explosion in Beirut. But on the other hand, the, the political system is thoroughly rotten, but hard to replace. And there are a number of actors, including the United States, including France, including the, the Gulf Arab states who have a great interest in Lebanon. They feel you have to destroy more of it. It has to collapse more before you can build something better in place. That's balancing on a knife edge. How much crisis is the right amount of crisis to get to weaken the current system and build something new, but not so much that you're crippled when you try to build something new. You know, Lebanon's been having a financial crisis and there's no sign of, of Lebanon's financial crisis coming to an end. I don't know when people are going to say it's time to pull out of this nosedive. Um, I think ultimately there are enough people who don't want Lebanon to collapse. But how you pressure the ruling elites enough that they will abandon their positions of power and yield to something else, it's going to be it's, it's a it's a nasty game of chicken. And of course, with us, with all games of chicken, sometimes they end in tragedy. You said you go back and forth. Where are you right now, do you think? You said it's it's thoroughly rotten, but hard to replace. That's not a very optimistic outlook. It, it sounds like maybe the nosedive has to be abandoned. My guess is at the end of the day, there is enough Lebanese talent to come in and save the system, but people aren't going to want to come in if they think it's just buttressing the current system. So I, I'm leaning toward Lebanon will figure this out, but I'm happy that nobody's putting a gun to my head and saying, when is that going to happen and how much pain will there be in the interim? Because it strikes me the answer is there'll be a lot of pain. I don't know when it's going to happen. John Alterman, I wonder what we should be talking about regarding the Middle East that we're not. There's so much in the news. There's only so much that the average person going about their day can take in. But if you look past the election in the United States, look past the virus, look past social movements here and around the world, what stories do you think we ought to be paying more attention to in the Middle East? Obviously, there's a lot going on there. There is. And I think the way a lot of people think about the Middle East is, is not very interesting or helpful. Certainly when I was 
working in the State Department, every speech we had in the Middle East bureaus, Iran, Iraq, Israel, and then some fourth issue. But we, we sort of got very stuck on the same kinds of issues, which really don't affect most people most of the time. I think there's a huge shift going on as the world works its way off hydrocarbons. And the Middle East's centrality to world history in the 20th century was all based on hydrocarbons. What does that look like as the Middle East deals with a world that cares less about oil and gas? Every government in the region really is dependent on revenue from hydrocarbons, either because they are oil and gas exporters or they are labor exporters to countries that are oil and gas exporters. But if you think that you're not really going to have internal combustion engine cars in the next 30 years, or you'll have a lot fewer if the world is going to be awash in oil in the future, like it was last spring in, in the post-COVID-19 environment. What does that look like in the Middle East? Uh, what kinds of models of governance won't work anymore? What kinds of social movements might you have? And how might they engage differently with the rest of the world? Well, governments have very different relationships with people. And, and what will that look like? Uh, and how will the world engage with the Middle East if everybody doesn't need oil and gas equally? Nobody's really been talking about this. I've been, I've been starting to look at it. It is tied to what I think is a, a U.S. consensus that we have to lighten our footprint. But I think people haven't been nearly thoughtful enough about, A, what lightening our footprint looks like, and B, what reactions people will have to a lighter American footprint. Assume, if you assume that nobody's going to react, we'll just do what we do and everything else will remain the same. I think that's crazy. We have to think about what a less Middle East-centered global security framework looks like for the Middle East and whether the Middle East then reaches out and draws us back in. Won't you be out of a job if that happens? <laughs> uh, the important thing is I get my kids through college and I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be able to to, to manage the, the current agenda of things uh, to get them through college. After that, I'm be happy to retire. <laughs> what are you working on right now, speaking of retiring or not retiring? The, the minute we get off this conversation, what are you going to work on? I am working. We're doing a Russia in the Middle East podcast series. We did a China in the Middle East podcast series in the winter. We're doing a Russia in the Middle East podcast series. The first uh, episode dropped yesterday. Uh, it's going to be a six-part series. We are talking to an amazing group of Russians and Americans and Arabs, people who worked in the White House, uh, people who worked in the UN, people who have seen close up how Russia thinks about the region, how Russia tries to use the region, how U.S.-Russian ties shape the way Russia engages in the Middle East. And I have my own podcast interview to run, uh, to the last one for that series. So that's on tap for this afternoon. It is, it's funny saying this on a podcast. I think podcasts are great ways to make hard ideas palatable. We're in a world where it's really hard to get somebody to read a 50-page report. But I have found putting together this podcast series, which is edited and, and has a pretty strong storyline attached, that you can get an awful lot of information and it doesn't feel like work. And, uh, and I'm very excited about doing it. I'm very excited about what podcasts can do for, for people having a broader sense of the Middle East rather than just what you read in the paper. Because frankly, what you read in the paper, 90% of it is the same story every single day. I couldn't agree more. Do you want to guess what I was listening to while I was working out at the gym yesterday? I have no idea. I was listening to Translating the Middle East, the History of Saudi-Iranian 
competition. Does that ring a bell? That that is one of my podcasts. The podcast is exactly. called Babel, translating the Middle East. Um, what you should be listening to, what I sometimes listen to the zoo, listen to at the gym, uh, is there's a, a Lebanese singer called Hanin Ison Cubanos, which is a combination Arabo-Latin fusion. And it actually turns out that Arabic music and Latin music blend really, really nicely. So there is a band in, in Lebanon called Hanini Son Cubanos, and about half of it is awesome gym music. I will, I will listen to it. I bet it's more awesome gym music than uh, your podcast, Babel, translating the Middle East, although I did learn an enormous amount. I kept having to stop and go back a few seconds because you can't zone out. You have to really pay attention when you're at the gym. Uh, there's other things to pay attention to, but it was a it was a wonderful episode, I have to say. Thank you very much, Daniel. Don Altman, uh, I want to thank you for being here. Uh, you're just terrific. The insights and the depth are much appreciated. Daniel, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.